We're in 2 Peter. For those of you new to Scripture, that's in the back of the Bible, the very last book's Revelation. Move back a few books and you'll find 2 Peter before all the John books. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter has been talking at length about this future day coming when it'll be a glorious day when Christ returns. And we'll dive right into the middle of his discussion of that with the early church, starting in verse 8. Listen to God's word speaking. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. You know, as people, we like to think about where things come from. There's even a, a common question that we ask to kind of get us thinking about origins and where things come from, the most famous of which is this, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, it sounds like a profound question, maybe an intellectual game, and we all could go back and forth about which came first. Was it the Egg, uh, maybe, and we come up with reasons for that. Maybe it was the chicken, or we could come up with reasons for that. But the thing is, when it comes to living in this world, Christians ask a very different question. We actually ask, which came last, the chicken or the egg? Uh, we come to the matter as Christians because we care about where things came from, but we care even more about where things are going. So if you think about the chicken and egg quandary from a Christian point of view, then the answer is easy. The egg does not come first. Or rather, the egg exists to produce a chicken. The chicken is the end in mind. The chicken doesn't exist for the egg the egg exists for the chicken. You know, G.K. Chesterton saw this kind of important connection about thinking which comes last when he says that all animals and everything else in the world are really pushed by their past. But what's different about Christianity is that we are pulled by our future. And that's because our future says far more about our present than our past does when it comes to who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. In other words, Christians are pulled by our hope of what Christ will bring to the table one day 
in the future. And so in light of the Christian chicken and egg question, our big question today, and really Peter's big point throughout all of 2 Peter 3, centers around this. What comes last for us? What comes last for us and for the world? Or really, the, the really burning question that every person in our world asks about history, about our own lives, is this. Where's all this going? Where are we headed? Where is the story of history itself headed in the end? Well, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about how uh, Christianity sees history in a particular way. And our first slide kind of illustrates this. Uh, the outline of history that we've been using for years at Redeemer is simply this. We believe that God created, that there was a fall of men, that Christ came to redeem, and that one day he will come back to restore creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the story, if you will. Well, today, Peter's going to bring us to that last moment when Christ comes back, and everything changes in history. You see, the shorthand answer for where is all of this going from Peter, as we've seen in 2 Peter 3, is that Jesus Christ is coming back to change the world and set everything the way it's supposed to be. Now, the reason he is highlighting this in 2 Peter 3 is very simple. Within the church and outside of the church, there were many who actually were cynics, who made fun of the idea of Jesus coming back, would even say things like, Oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. Where's he been for 2,000 years? And Peter responds to them, really, in a very logical argument that goes like this. Well, when we think, talk about Jesus coming back and when he's coming back, you know, only God knows when that day will be. But here's a key thing to remember. Uh, when, Jesus, uh, excuse me, when God promised uh, that there would be judgment in a flood, he eventually brought it, even though it was for a time a delay... He judged the world once with a flood. He's going to judge the world finally with fire. Also, he goes in to say, you know, for those who would criticize God's timing, he'd say, God's timing is not our timing. A, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And God's seeming delay is actually meant for our good and our benefit in the sense that he is calling us to repentance. All men, those who don't know Christ, he's giving time that they might come into his kingdom and follow as Christ. Even Christians, as we talked about last week, are called to repent and to grow for a larger purpose that we'll address here in just a few minutes. And Peter's biggest response to this whole complaint, or really protest, that Christ is really not going to come back, the scoffers, if you will, is that Jesus actually will come back, but it'll be without warning. Everything will change in an instant. So that brings us to our question today about where is all this coming, or to be real specific, what will that look like exactly? That's what's in our text today. What is it going to look like when Jesus comes back? And the short answer is there'll be a cluster of events of events that's described well in chapter 10. Look at, I mean, excuse me, verse 10, which says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verses 10 through 13 vividly describe what will happen when Christ returns. And I want to summarize that with really five main highlights of 
those cluster of events that will occur when Jesus returns. And the first thing is this. It's Jesus will actually come back. He'll actually come back in a bodily form, uh, uh, and he will be known throughout the world when he returns. It will not be a secret or a flyby. This will be on the day of the Lord when Jesus, the Son of God, shows up personally and in power as a judge. The first time, as we often say, he came as a Savior. In some ways, he was judging too in that he took judgment on himself on the cross. But then he will come back in final judgment of the world, even us. The second thing that is not in our text, but is highlighted in what we sang today in I Will Rise, and even as in 1 Corinthians 15, is that when Jesus returns, everyone will be resurrected. The dead will be resurrected, and their bodies, uh, new bodies, will be reunited with their souls. Not only that, those who are living will be translated. That is, they will get new bodies as well, and uh, those will be reunited with their new bodies with their souls as well. In other words, to, to, when Christ comes back, he's going to renew all men, uniting us as whole in body and soul. The third thing, I'm going to camp out on this one for a little while, that Jesus will do, will do is that when he comes back, Scripture tells us that he, the heavens and the earth, as well as men, will go through fire. Now, I mean, last week we talked about this. Common response to this is, oh, there you go again, you Christians, talking about fire and brimstone again. Well, what you need to understand is the image of fire throughout Scripture is the image of judgment, of purging, of uh, transformation through heat and fire. In fact, in our text, uh, burning is the image is all over the place. And three times in, it text, in our text, it talks about how things are dissolved, particularly heavenly bodies. you got to ask, why is all the fire language here? Well, like I said, it first and foremost is about purging. But secondly, what you have to realize is Hebrews 12 teaches is that God himself is a consuming fire. God himself in his utter holiness and purity, when it meets up with unholiness and corruption in the world in any way, when those two meet, God wins every time. God overcomes it. And again, a common protest would be, oh, there you go again. God in his fire. and he's, it's, This is the kind of judging God of the Old Testament. When are we going to get over that and deal with the loving Jesus of the New Testament? Well, I would suggest to you, you need to read actually the Old Testament and New Testament thoroughly. You find out the judging God of the Old Testament is actually very loving. But you'll also find out when you read about Jesus in the New Testament in the Gospels, he's not only very loving as he has a, an apt reputation for, he's also a judge. Do you know at Luke 12 what he says? He says of himself, I have come to set fire to the earth. Whoa. That's heavy language. Jesus, the the mild, friendly, warm, welcoming, the broken, says, I have come to set fire on the earth. In other words, he's come as a judge to purge the earth of sin. And he starts with you and me and our souls. Now, the interesting thing about this text when it talks about fire 
is it invokes this language of the heavens. Did you notice that in here? How many times he brings up heavens and how to be burned up? Verse 10 talks about how the heavens will pass away with a roar and how heavenly bodies will be dissolved. What does Peter mean by all that? Well, when the Bible talks about the heavens, it has three heavens in mind. The first heaven is our atmosphere here in on the earth. It's kind of our sky where all the oxygen and nitrogen and everything is that we breathe. That's the first heaven with the clouds and the rain. That's what the Bible's talking about in the first heaven. The second heaven the Bible talks about is space, the universe, everything else beyond in creation, quasars, black holes, stars, planets, meteorites, everything. That's what's in uh, the second heaven. And according to our text, uh, the first heaven will pass away, uh, pass away. Somehow our atmosphere will be transformed. But even then, space in the universe itself will be dissolved, that is eradicated, so that somehow space will be transformed. What Peter's saying is that though we don't literally think that the earth is the center of the universe, it is, uh, if you will, the spiritual center of the universe in what God will be doing when Jesus returns. There is a third heaven, though. And you know what the third heaven is? It's what Pete, Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians 12. It's God's home, the heaven where God resides. It's Mount Zion. It's the city of God. It is our true home as God's people. That's what the third heaven is. And the beauty of what he's talking about in these heavens here in this text is ultimately Revelation 21 tells us that the third heaven comes down to earth. The new Jerusalem, the city of God comes down to earth so that they are connected. More on that in a second. So, we got to ask, what happens in light of all this to the earth when Jesus comes back? What happens in the judgment that goes with the earth? Well, look at verse 10 in the last section. It says, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some of you have older translations that say the earth will be burned up and what's done on it will be burned up. That is an incorrect, incorrect translation. The much preferred translation is a word that says the earth will be exposed or found out. Everything that's done on earth, if you will, will be found out. Meaning the earth itself will be purged. Everything ever done on this earth and built, even in cities, in our works, will be purged of the corruption of sin. And this, in the case of the earth, is not the burning that's like uh, putting your, uh, for some of us, putting or um, raking up your leaves in the fall, put them in the backyard, taking a lighter and lighting them up and letting them burn away so there's nothing left. Nah, it's a different kind of burning. It's the burning of silver and gold in a crucible so that it's purified. That's what will occur with the earth. 
So we've covered the heavens and we've covered the earth and what's happened in our text. Now that begs the question, what about us? What about us in this text? Well, verse 10 says that works will be exposed. Folks, that's our works. That's what we do. What we are responsible to have done. All that we have done will be subjected to the fire of God's purging in his judgment. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that what you and I do in this life matters. And it will be tested and purged. And in some cases, some of it will last. In other cases, it won't last for eternity. You've heard me use this illustration before, but it's the best one I got. So just indulge me for a second. Yes, I am a man, and I love the movie Gladiator. General Maximus, at the beginning of the movie, if you, for some of you who recall, gathers his troops together, and he particularly gathers his cavalry together to ride their horses into a great battle against Germania. As he sits on his horse, he jokes with his men all about how if you're a uh, Uh, you're in battle and suddenly you see yourself in Elysium, that's the Greek form of heaven or the Roman form of heaven, then you've died and you've moved on. And all of them start laughing about how they could die. And then after the laughter ends, (laughs) Maximus says this profound thing. He says, men, never forget what we do today echoes in eternity. What we do today echoes in eternity. I'd like to tweak that a little as Christians and say what we do today will be resurrected in eternity. And the beauty of this truth is how you live your life, even in the smallest things in this world, the most insignificant that people don't know about, it matters to God. It makes a difference to him in how you live. Now, it is true that some of what we do in this life will burn. 1 Corinthians 3, for those of you who need it, says that uh, some of what we do now will burn like wood and hay. But it also says that some of what we do in following Christ, in particular, will continue on as silver and gold. Revelation 14, for those who doubt that things will continue on and even want to think that it'll all burn, listen to Revelation 14. It says that in point of fact, when people die, their works will follow them into heaven. So what does this mean? When you go to work at your vocation, when you go to the office in the hospital, when you go to school, when you parent your kids, when you enter into meaningful moments in your marriage, when you do life in every conceivable way, when you make art, when you create something useful and good for others, not just yourself, when you do your job at work, that may be resurrected into eternity. Suddenly, 
when you think this way, it changes how you live. When you think about what comes last and not what comes first, it changes how you live your life. It brings dignity to it. Let me put it this way. At the beginning of creation, God told people like you and me, all of us in the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, you know what he's going to do when new creation comes? When Jesus returns, he is going to redeem all that is done so, that has been fruitful, multiplying, filling of the earth, and is subduing it. He will resurrect it, and it will go into eternity. Your work and your life matters. You are not insignificant in what you do and say in life. That brings us then to the grand finale of Christ's work and his return. Peter brings it to us here in verse 13. Listen to what he says. According to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what's coming next is after Christ has judged all things, there is a new heavens and a new earth. And the story of the world in creation, fall, redemption, restoration will finally come to that point of true restoration. You know, back in the Old Testament, after the fall and after God had cursed the earth under Adam's rebellion, God made a promise, as it says here in our text, in Isaiah 60, Isaiah 64, Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 66. And I might even say implicitly he promises in the flood that there would be a new heavens and a new earth. In Isaiah 11, he describes it in a famous text that many of you have probably heard before. It goes like this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. This picture of perfect harmony, of no more violence, but reconciliation and glory even in relationship. You see, in the new heavens and new earth, Satan is finally defeated. Sin is finally squashed. In worldliness, that normative sense of, well, doing sin is normal. Why do you want to do holiness? That's stupid. Is gone. The city of God will come to earth. And God will dwell with men, as Revelation says. You see, this new heaven and new earth is a renewed creation. Renewed through Christ and his great power and redemption. Now, the reason why we need to highlight this vision of a renewed creation, a new heavens and a new earth, is this is distinct to popular views of where this is all going. Now, there are different views in our world that you'll taste in your life and you'll hear among people, even in culture itself, one popular view of the world uh, and it's where it's going is the utopian view. And it goes like this. If we just get our technology right, if we just get our education right, if we just get our economics right so everybody has their fair share, then everything will be okay. The real problem with the utopian view is it never, ever takes into account the brokenness of men like you and me. That the problem is in the end not with the economics. The problem is not with the education. The problem's in us. 
with our brokenness and our sin. And we can't overcome the problem on our own. That brings us to another popular view. You've seen this one in a very popular movie in the last few years called The Hunger Games. It's the dystopian view. You have the utopian view, now the dystopian view. And the dystopian view says basically this. One day, we're all just going to devolve into terrible animal-like creatures, and we're going to go after each other. This is going in a bad direction, and life will be all about survival. We're going the opposite direction of progress. We're going to a dark place of regress. And there, we just have to make do. Now, some hear this dystopian view, and they, and they uh, uh, want to even go to the next level, which is annihilation. Well, let's just get it over with. Let's get out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And then there are many like me who long for the, the most popular version of all in American culture, which is La La Land. It goes like this. La La Land. Well, in the end, we'll all just end up in heaven. Heaven's just somewhere way out there beyond kind of the universe somewhere. We'll be on clouds playing our little harps. And uh, it'll be serene. It'll be a little boring. But hey, you know, at least everything's okay. You know? And my question for us is, do we just want to settle for okay? Is that all there is? Well, guys, i got to tell you, that's not Christianity. Christianity says there's a new heavens and a new earth coming that is the utter opposite of boring. God is going to radically alter our world, and he's going to resurrect us and our new bodies and even resurrect the world so that we'll be with him forever in a renewed creation. We get to be with God forever. We get to live in a world pulsating with His glory where everything is actually the way it's supposed to be. That's where we're going. And in the Christian view of eternity, that's where it all ends. You know, thinking about that, I'm thinking, wow, I'm ready to go now. How about you? That brings us to the problem then that Peter even brings up in our text. We're still living in this world, aren't we? The broken one. And what Peter has said sounds like a great story, even a really hopeful story, but we want to protest and say, Peter, what about now? Well, Peter is telling us this picture and this story so that it will actually affect the way we live now. Because we don't ask what comes first. We actually ask what comes last. And here's why. Look at verse 11 with me. Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter says, Since all this is coming down, since Jesus is coming back and our destination is paradise, we are called by God to live in holiness and and godliness. 
Let me summarize those two phrases together. A very different lifestyle than the rest of the world. Godliness is a lifestyle. A lifestyle devoted to God in everything. Submitting to Christ as Lord in everything. Money, how you do relationships, how you think of yourself, how you think of the world, how you do your job. Godliness affects all of that and beyond. It is in the old language. I'm saying old because when I was young, we used to say it this way. It's the Christ-centered life. Where we do what we do in reference to Christ, even imitating him in Christ-likeness. The next aspect is holiness. It's a, holiness is a quality, a way to describe something. It's a distinctive quality of living that sets us apart from those who don't know God. First Peter, Peter comes out and says that God tells us to be holy as I am holy. To imitate him with that distinctiveness that's salt, that's light, that's unique, that's beauty. That's a taste of the way it's supposed to be in heaven itself. So, in your parenting, in your marriages, in your relationships, in sports activities, even in how you coach your kids and other kids on teams, in your schoolwork, kids, be distinctive in the way you live. And I don't mean distinctive in a weirdness. I mean distinctive in wholeness of what God intends in his word. Why is Peter telling us to live this way in light of what awaits in paradise? Why don't we just say, man, I, I, I just want to get ready to go there. I don't want to deal with the world. In fact, I want to hide from the world. Nah, he wants us to spend our time growing in these areas for one simple reason. Because our job in this life is to prepare for that life. Our job in this life is to actually live like we've died, gone to heaven, and been resurrected. That's the way we're supposed to live in this life. You're supposed to live. That's the whole language of Romans 6. That we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. Sanctification, if you will. How we live our life now in holiness is preparing for how we'll live in the presence of God forever. That's what he's calling us to. So in this time, we do evangelism. We, we reach out to people. We care for people. And that is where we love now as we will love then. Jesus, you see through Peter, is calling us to live in a different way. But here's the thing. While you're living, you're also waiting. And oh my, is waiting a hard thing in this life, is it not? I mean, waiting is perhaps the most difficult part of following Jesus because we have our time, but God has his time. The issue of waiting, though, is this you will face spiritual challenges that God will allow in your life. You will experience hardships and difficulties. You will experience pain. I have experienced hardships and pain. And sometimes I wonder, why can't I have heaven now, Lord? 
Well, that's because God allows that pain to come so that you and I will grow into more Christ-likeness, getting ready to live with Him in eternity. Don't think your pain is purposeless. Don't think your hardship has no reason or rhyme to it, though for a time we may not understand. I'll concede that. Realize that the waiting is all about you and me growing up in Jesus. Now, there are some here who hear about this language of growing and waiting, and especially growing and waiting in light of heaven, and you're like, please. I'm just really tired of this pie-in-the-sky thinking about heaven. Don't you see we live in a painful world? The cynic among us, which I know very well because I'm prone to that, would think, I don't want to talk about the silliness of heaven anymore. I don't think it's real. Well, I have two responses for you. One's from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says this, you know, one thing that's common about all men and all cultures is we all have within us this longing for something better in the future. We all have this longing for even this glorious place, this perfect home. And we spend our lives looking for it, even trying to create it sometimes. You know what Lewis says? He says, you know, could it be that if we have all that in common among us, even among different creeds and cultures, yes, even religions, could it be true that it's a real place? There is a second reason, though. And this one is far more convincing. And it's this. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and died on a cross for our sin. He died so that we might be forgiven of our sin once and for all, and so that we might spend eternity with him in heaven. But don't miss this important point. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. And because he's alive and has 500 witnesses to prove it, That gives us hope that heaven's a real place. And just think about this. If Jesus is alive and can make us alive, if Jesus is alive and can make the world alive, then how much more do we have an opportunity to worship God in heaven forever? God, as Jonathan Edwards says, has made us for himself he is our highest good to pursue. To go to heaven and fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Do you know why you get pleasures in this life? They're tastes of God himself in heaven. You, had an, you enjoy a football game, the celebration there, you ain't seen nothing yet until you get into heaven. You enjoy relationship, the laughter with friends, and the joy and intimacy of connecting. You ain't seen nothing yet when you get into heaven. You enjoy actually accomplishing something, especially men, when we build something or get something right and it works and it helps. Oh, wait till we get to heaven and there's a God working on our soul with that. Oh, the beauty of heaven is extraordinary. Edwards again puts it this way. Look, you've tasted love and relationships. 
Well, the relationship, the love, the real love you've tasted in relationships with family and friends are but drops. God is the ocean. To think about it further, for eternity will will only be with God drawing nearer, nearer to Him. And yet you'll never exhaust getting to know His beauty and glory. That's the thing I love about my marriage to Elizabeth. Is I think I know her. But then we have another experience in life. We have another taste of life in a new way. And I find up, out something more glorious about her. That's a taste of what's coming in heaven with Christ. God is infinite. He's the highest experience you could ever attain. The best happiness to be blessed with. This is where we're headed in Christ. The beatific vision of seeing God himself and enjoying him forever. That's where we're going. That's what's last. So we began our conversation today asking, where is all this headed? Let me ask you guys something. Where are you headed? Where are you going? Where is your eternal destiny? And how can you know you'll get there? As Christians, we say there is only one way to God for eternity. One road, one door, one Christ, and his name is Jesus. If you receive him by faith alone and resting on what he's done and accomplished for you, not yourself, knowing that God has loved you out of his grace, giving you the opposite of what you deserve, an eternal gift that ends up being eternal life in heaven, Receive the gift by faith. Go home tonight and pray. By yourself, you have to pray with a friend here. Pray with me. I don't care. Whatever it takes, go to God and seek his face. For heaven awaits you. If you're a Christian today, you know what you need to do? You need to grow in hope. Today's Christians wring their hands over how the culture's dying and things like that. And it's true and worth lament. But move to the next place. This is not our home. Home is there with God in heaven, finally in a new heavens and new earth. Learn to hope in the waiting on the Lord. Learn to hope in the longing for God. Pray with your passion, with your heart, because God is awaiting you at home. In conclusion, C.S. Lewis says that his human history is to be understood as a book. Everything that's ever happened is only the cover and title page. And when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we will discover that we are just starting chapter one. Chapter one of a great story that no one has ever read, that goes on forever. And in which every chapter is better than the one before. Read the book. Trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We admit that learning these wonderful things in your word seems so abstract, so pie in the sky, so way out in the future. But we pray that you would touch our hearts with a vision of where we are going
and that we would live pulled by our future as Christians and you. And I pray for those who really wonder, are they headed home? Are they headed to heaven? That those who have questions about you would call in your name, would seek your face as the one who is the living Christ, not a dead Savior or a dead teacher from history, a Lord who is really alive and can offer life right now, right here, because you are here in the Spirit. Lord, meet us now, even as we sup with you in the supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us as we prepare our hearts for communion. <laughs>